This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 4, The Sasanian Empire. what we know about the area of the Persian empires from the destruction of the Assyrian Empire at the end of the 7th century BCE. A joint effort by the Medes and the Babylonians caused the end of the Assyrian Empire. The Middle East would be shared between the two new superpowers, the Medes in the north and the Babylonians in the south. The Persian heartland based at the city of Anshan, would rise up against the Medes and defeat them, taking control of their Median Empire and starting a Persian Empire, which we call the Achaemenids. The Achaemenids would defeat the Babylonians and create a larger empire than the world had ever seen. It would take the exploits of a mighty warrior who we call Alexander the Great, to conquer the Achaemenid Persians in the 4th century BCE and this would mark the establishment of a Macedonian Empire on the lands of what was the Achaemenid Empire. After the death of Alexander the Great, his successors would wrestle for control of these territories. The general Seleucus would ultimately take control of a large part of the former Macedonian Empire but Greek and Egyptian lands would remain independent from the new Seleucid Empire and Armenia would establish itself as an independent kingdom. During the 3rd century BCE, Parthia, an area in the northeast of the Seleucid Empire, would declare its independence. Despite some successful Parthian aggression, the Seleucids would manage to keep both Parthia and Armenia subject to its rule. However, both kingdoms would regain their independence during the 2nd century BCE, with the Parthians taking control of all the Iranian lands and southern Mesopotamia, pushing the Seleucids westwards. The pressure of the Parthians to their east, the Armenians to their north, and the Romans to their west would prove to be too much for the Seleucid Empire, which would collapse completely by the 1st century BCE. It was at this point that the Romans and the Parthians would recognise the threat of each other and the two powers would turn their attention to Armenia with both powers recognising the significance of gaining influence over this important buffer state. Rome and Parthia would spend almost three centuries jostling for control of Armenian lands and other borderlands in a bid to prevent the other from becoming too powerful and influential but the fate of the Parthians would not be decided by the Romans, even though it was the Romans who had posed a bigger threat to the Parthians over the course of their long and bitter feud. Persis 
So we need to remind ourselves about the significance of Persis to the story of these cultures, as we believe that a migration of Indo-European speakers into the lands of Persis occurred before the emergence of the Achaemenid Empire. It is this bloodline that the first great Persian ruler, Cyrus the Great, is thought to have belonged to, so this distinct identity was clear. So when the Macedonians invaded the Achaemenids, and when the Parthians took control of the empire, it is important to note that these kingdoms and empires were not regarded as truly Persian, even though they were ruling Persian lands. So when local rulers with the Persis region started to rebel against their Parthian rulers, they viewed themselves as the true Persians with a sense of entitlement which drew from the heritage of who they claimed to be their blood ancestors, the Achaemenids, and their glorious leader, Cyrus the Great. Throughout the 2nd century BCE, the Parthians had their hands full with the Roman Empire to its west. In the year 208, the Parthian king Volagassis V died and was succeeded by his son, who became Volagassis VI. All was well at first within the Parthian Empire, up until Volagassis' own brother, Artabanus, decided that he should be the ruler of the Parthian Empire. So therefore, Parthia was heading towards a dynastic crisis, as the empire split into two, trying to resolve the issue of who should rule the empire. The situation would not be helped by the Romans, under the rule of Emperor Caracalla, who would look to try to diplomatically exploit the situation by trying to gain the favour of one of the brothers in order to help their cause and gain some riches for himself. It would be during this period of civil unrest that a local movement in the region of Persis started to gain momentum and influence over its local area. The Arsacid siblings were too busy dealing with each other to be able to turn any attention towards this local uprising. The Arsacids were the long-time ruling dynasty of the Parthian Empire, just for clarity. Artabanus would take control of the lands of the Eastern Parthian Empire, and we refer to him today as Artabanus IV. His older brother, Volagassis VI, the original successor of the Parthian throne, would be forced out west to rule out of the city of Seleucia. So Artabanus IV now held the upper hand in the Parthian Empire, but from within Perthis, a man called Ardashir had declared himself as the king of Persis and had ambitions beyond his local region. The culmination of this uprising would be the Battle of Homozgan in the year 224 when Ardashir and his son Shahpur would lead an army made up primarily of cavalrymen against Artabanus IV's larger Arsacid Parthian army. The result of the battle was a decisive victory for Ardashir's Persis kingdom, with the Parthian king Artabanus IV being killed at the battle. Ardashir would claim rule of the Persian Empire and as the descendant of Sasan, a great warrior and high priest, 
and therefore would begin the Sasanian dynasty of the Persian Empire, which we refer to today as the Sasanian Empire. Artabanus IV's brother, Volagasis VI, held out in Mesopotamia for around another four years before Ardashir's forces would force the last Arsacids out of Persia for the first time since they took control of the Seleucid Empire over 450 years previous. The Arsacid dynasty would now be out of Persia and would only survive in the states of Armenia, Caucasian Albania and the Kingdom of Iberia to the northwest of what was now the new Sasanian Empire. So now the Persian Empire was back under the control of Persian people for the first time since the fall of the Achaemenid Empire. Ardashir would swiftly turn his attentions eastwards and take advantage of the weakened condition of the Kushan Empire to establish a more powerful border in the east. Ardashir would also consolidate the lands around the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz, which would have been vital for maritime trade. During this period, Ardashir would battle against the Romans for Mesopotamian lands originally held by the Achaemenids and by his death in 240 had gained the upper hand gaining the cities of Nisibis and Karay in northern Mesopotamia. The Sassanids had breathed new life into the Persian lands and turned a somewhat vulnerable looking Parthian empire into a threatening and well-organised Sassanid Empire. Control of the empire became more centralised than the Parthian Empire, which had given more power to the local governors. Ardashir used the traditional Persian title, King of Kings, to describe himself, but he would also go one step further by ensuring that the Persian coins were inscribed with Persian writing, and not the Greek writing common since the invasion of the Hellenic armies of Alexander the Great. The message was clear, that Persian lands were distinct from Europe. Within 10 years, the map of the Middle East had changed dramatically. Neighbouring Parthian and Kushan empires were now under Sasanian rule, with a Kushano-Sasanian kingdom established as a subject state in the lands of modern Afghanistan. Ardashir would waste little time in trying to take northern Mesopotamian lands back from the Romans, but it would be his son that would cause more problems. Shahpur the Great After a brief period of co-rule with his father, Ardashir, Shahpur I would rule the Sasanian Empire after his father's death in 242. Shahpur had been on campaign with his father and this seemed to have a positive effect on Shahpur's ability to lead an army in battle and the Romans would learn this over time. Ardashir and Shahpur took the cities of Nisibis and Karay back from the Romans before Ardashir's death. After Ardashir's death the Romans would return for revenge and initially they did well before meeting with Shahpur's forces at the Battle of Misaki in 244 where Shahpur's Sassanids 
dealt the Romans and their allies a crushing defeat and therefore gaining control over Mesopotamia and gaining Armenia as a suzerainty. Shapur would carry on his father's work in establishing a distinct state identity for the Sassanid Empire, promoting Zoroastrianism as the approved religion, but still allowing religious tolerance within the vast empire. Parthian traditions did carry on within the Sassanid Empire, but times had indeed changed. The Sassanid Empire was on the map, and the Persians were back in control and no longer willing to be anything less than the most imposing force of the lands of Southwest Asia. In the year 253, Valerian became the emperor of the Roman Empire. Things had started to get tricky for the Romans in their Anatolian lands, especially with their former Gothic allies now trying to invade Anatolia for themselves. Valerian went to Anatolia himself to try and deal with the Gothic problem and also to stand up to Shapur's Sassanids who were making frequent raids into Roman lands. In the year 260, the Romans were hit by an illness and Shapur would move in for the kill. The Romans and the Sassanids engaged at the Battle of Edessa and the result could not have been worse for the Romans. The Sassanids overran and captured the Romans, including Emperor Valerian. Some historians claim that although Valerian was an emperor, that his treatment as a prisoner of war was far from befitting of his status. Valerian would become the only Roman emperor to die in captivity, which is quite a feather in the cap of Shapur and the Sassanids. After this period, the Romans had too much on their plate to show any kind of aggression towards the Sassanids, but they were able to keep the Sassanids from causing any further major problems, and so the status of the Sassanid Empire and Armenia as a subject state remained the same until the death of Shapur I in 270. Shapur died in the city of Bishapur, which he founded himself during his lifetime. Modern Iranians had re-erected an ancient colossal statue of Shapur, which was discovered in a cave nearby and can be visited to this day. Shapur's legacy is that of a mighty Persian king who did much to embarrass the mighty Romans and build a national and religious identity for Persia. The 4th century Tensions remained high between the Sassanids and the Romans who in this area of the world were to become the Eastern Romans or the Byzantines during this century. Armenia still remained a pawn in the game between the two superpowers as the Arsacid rulers would choose to align themselves with whoever benefited them the most at any given time. The Arsacid dynasty were also the rulers of the Parthian Empire you may remember. Little of comparative note took place during the 4th century on this western front of the Sasanian Empire, but an interesting development was taking place in the east. In the remnants of what was the Kushan Empire, 
which in turn had become the Kashano-Sasanian kingdom, it appears that a new ethnicity had moved into this area. Now, details are a bit sketchy, and we have to try and work out from the different written sources available from the different neighbouring empires and kingdoms what was going on, and who was causing it to go on. The Romans would refer to these people in the northeast of the Sasanian Empire as Chionati, which has come down to us today as Xionites, spelt X-I-O-N, and I am choosing to pronounce it as Xionites based on what I have read. The significance of the Xionites is that they may be closely related to significant people who emerged in the Eurasian steppe during this period the Huns. The Huns would play an extremely important role in history towards the end of the 4th century, not least of all becoming a huge thorn in the sides of the Romans in Europe. However, they are believed to have originated from the Eurasian steppe, and it is very possible that these Cyanites were an offshoot of the original Huns, although this can be contested due to a lack of firm evidence. What is important to us is that it seems that there was conflict between the Sasanians and the Cyanites before a possible uneasy alliance against other common threats. When the Sasanian king Hormizd II died in 309, the throne would ultimately go to his unborn son who would become Shahpur II and who would be the king of the Sasanian Empire for his entire life, which lasted for 70 years. Shahpur II would be ruling while these developments were going on to his east and he would eventually have to deal with them even though he had been constantly battling on his western front against the Byzantines and the nomadic Arabs. So Shahpur II would have to switch his focus from the Western Front back over to the Eastern Front to deal with this Sinite alliance with the Kushans. However, it does appear that Shahpur II did this successfully before dying at the ripe old age of 70 in what could be classed as a successful and epic rule. As can often be the case when a long-serving monarch dies, the following period can be a time of unrest as the social elites, such as the priesthood and nobles, see the new monarchs as open to challenge, especially if they are trying to impose their own type of rule on their people. Even if they felt like the new monarch was not a social reformer, then the reaction of neighbouring kingdoms attempting to invade their homelands can be a major test of the capabilities of the new monarch and if he doesn't handle that situation well then that can give cause for the elite to then rebel against their leader, especially if military commanders believe that they can do a better job than the monarch of leading the army. The next three kings who succeeded Shahpur II were victims of regicide at the hands of their own people. The 5th century As mentioned previously, the timelines of the Huns is a little bit sketchy and we have to make a number of assumptions. We assume that the Cassianites 
who appeared in the Kushano lands to the northeast of the Sasanian Empire, were an offshoot of the Huns of the Eurasian steppe. During the 5th century, a new and more formidable wave of these people emerged in these lands, which are now known to us as the Hephthalites. The arrival of the Hephthalites would send some of the existing Sinites in the direction of the mighty Gupta Empire of India, while the Hephthalites themselves would make a nuisance of themselves to the Sasanian lands from their stronghold in the lands of the modern country of Afghanistan. We know very little about the Hephthalites, but we do know that they were very powerful and influential over a large area of land. The tension between the Sasanians and the Hephthalites culminated in a confrontation between the two empires in the year 484. The Sasanian king, which incidentally was always called a Shah in Persian lands, was Peroz I, and he led a Sasanian army against the Hephthalite forces led by their ruler Kushnavaz. Even though it was the 480s by now, these two had been ruling their empire since the 450s, so they were well-established adversaries. Strangely, it seems that the Hephthalites had a hand in Peroz's ascension to the Persian throne. Peroz had been successful in calming the relationship with the Byzantines in the west, but now the Hephthalites were trying to take control of the lands in eastern Persia, and this wouldn't do. The two forces ultimately met at Balkh, which is a town in northern Afghanistan. Peroz I was in no mood to enter diplomatic negotiations with the Hephthalites, so a confrontation was unavoidable. The result was a disaster. Sassanid losses were heavy, and Sassanid king Peroz I was killed in action. The Sassanids had been decisively defeated, and the Hephthalites were now able to install a puppet king and extract tribute from the Sassanids. The Sassanid Empire had been subjugated by the Hephthalite Empire. The 6th Century If the 5th century wasn't a dramatic story in the existence of the Sasanian Empire, then the 6th century certainly had a lot more to offer. We don't really have much to go by in regards to the early part of the 6th century up until the reign of Khosrow I. Khosrow's reign would prove to be very significant as a chapter in Persian history. Khosrow was quite a young man when he ascended to the Persian throne in 531. The situation within the Sasanian Empire was fragile, so Khosrow immediately went into a diplomatic position with the Byzantines to his west, which the Byzantines were probably quite happy about at the time due to their own problems needing to be prioritised. This resulted in the signing of the Treaty of Eternal Peace, which it wouldn't take long for the Persians to break when Khosrow invaded the city of Antioch. However, it was pretty much the same old story with the Romans and the Persians. The Romans fought back against the Persians, then there was a truce, followed by an uneasy peace. 
This peace would be broken this time by the Romans before a renewed truce due to the Persians needing to go and deal with problems on their eastern frontier. Fortunately for the Sassanids, the Hephthalites had another enemy to their north who were happy to assist the Sassanids in crushing the Hephthalite Empire. These people were the people of the Turkic Khaganate, who provide us with the earliest evidence of the Turkic language in written form. Turkic languages are still spoken in the world today, mainly centred around the Eurasian steppe, but also migrating to other Asian lands, especially the modern country of Turkey, unsurprisingly. So this saw the control of the once powerful Hephthalites. The Sassanids would also get drawn into Arab politics, even though they were not looking to expand their empire in that direction. At the far south of the Arabian Peninsula during the middle of the 6th century, Ethiopians from the kingdom of Aksum had crossed the Red Sea at Bab el-Mandeb and taken control of the lands of the modern country of Yemen. The Byzantines encouraged the Ethiopians to disrupt Persian maritime trade and as such the Persians were forced to run the Ethiopians out of Arabia, adding a large swathe of land at the south of the Arabian Peninsula to the Sasanian Empire. Khosrow's reign was a time of Sasanian success and expansion, although they were still locked in an inconclusive struggle with the Romans on their western front. This was still a positive time in the east and the south of the Sasanian Empire. Khosrow's reign was celebrated, with some even comparing his greatness to the legendary Achaemenid ruler Cyrus the Great. Khosrow eventually died in the year 579. Khosrow II When Khosrow II came to the Persian throne in 591, he had been assisted by the Roman Emperor, Maurice. However, when Maurice was deposed and murdered, Khosrow decided to declare war on the Romans and this would turn out to be a very pivotal decision, not just for the Sassanids, but for many surrounding nations and cities. The year was now 602, and a sustained period of war between the Sassanids and the Byzantines would now take place. The 6th century would see the Byzantine Empire at its largest extent, with the Italian and the Balkan Peninsula under its control. All of Anatolia and the lands of the Levant, Egypt and the North African coast including control of the Strait of Gibraltar. It is one of the world's greatest empires and often forgotten when compared to its Roman ancestor. Despite this it appears that the Byzantines struggled to gather the necessary tax money to be able to compete with the Sassanids. Khosrow II would use General Shahabaraz to execute campaigns in the Middle East. In 613, Shahabaraz scored a victory at Antioch before moving on to Jerusalem the following year and taking the city after a siege. This was the first time that the Empire of Persian lands had been in control of Jerusalem since the Seleucids eight centuries before. 
This would mean that there was no land link between the Byzantine heartlands and their Egyptian lands. So Egypt was effectively cut off and the Sassanids would move in to take advantage of this. In 618, Shahar Baraz would be entrusted with the campaign to take Egypt and all the riches that came with this Roman province. We don't have a lot of information about the Sasanian campaign into Egypt. It seems that Shahabaraz was able to advance along the coast to the city of Alexandria and after taking the city would then secure the rest of the Nile River. The Byzantines had been expelled from Egypt and the Sassanid Persians had incorporated it into their empire. This was truly turning into a Persian golden age with the empire at its greatest extent. Emperor Heraclius would personally take command of the Byzantine army during the 620s and start campaigning throughout Anatolia and Armenia to reclaim the lands lost to the Sassanids. The Sassanid response by Shah Khosrow II would be to send General Shahabaraz to the Byzantine capital city of Constantinople. Khosrow II believed that he could destroy the Byzantine Empire altogether and end centuries of Persian wars with the Romans and the Pannonian Avars who were a coalition of peoples who generally lived north of the Danube River. Shah Khosrow II had commissioned his best general Shahar Baraz, conqueror of the Levant and Egypt, to deal the killer blow to the Roman Empire at their capital city Constantinople and they would have the assistance of the Pannonian Avars, who would approach Constantinople by land, unlike the Sassanids, who would have to cross the Bosporus Strait. Everything seemed to favour the general Shahabaraz. 25 years later, the Sassanid Empire would be gone. What on earth went wrong? The Fall of the Sassanid Empire It's the year 626 and the Pannonian Avars reached the Theodosian Walls which was the defensive wall around Constantinople which was at the tip of the land to the European side of the Bosporus Strait where the western side of the modern city of Istanbul is today. The Sasanians approached from the east but were held up at the Bosporus Strait by the Byzantines' clever naval defence. Despite the siege lasting a number of weeks, it was a failure. The Pannonian Avars had to retreat back to beyond the Danube and the Sassanids had to give up their dream. The Roman Emperor Heraclius had installed enough belief in the Byzantines that they had the will and the confidence to hold out. This was a complete disaster for the Sassanids. Shah Khosrow II is reported to have sent a letter to Shahar Baraz's deputy ordering him to assassinate Shahar Baraz and bring the army back to Ctesiphon. Shahar Baraz would learn of this instruction and would take complete control of his army and establish a position of independence. The Byzantines 
were in no mood for sympathy and took the offensive against the now vulnerable Sassanid Empire. The Byzantines would engage the Sassanids at the Battle of Nineveh in 627 and the Sassanids would not have the benefit of their great general Shahabaraz. The Byzantines scored an easy victory over the Sassanids and were able to secure their former lands in Egypt and the Levant. All faith in the once great emperor Khosrow II was starting to disappear. It would not be long before the factions of the Sassanid nobility started trying to position themselves to take control of the languishing empire. Khosrow II was surrounded by enemies. The Byzantines to the west and the western Turkics to the east who were eager to get revenge for a couple of Sasanian beatings that they had received over the previous few decades. From within, Shahabaraz was now an enemy of Khosrow. The Parthians were ready to depose their emperors and even those based in the Persian heartland of Persis were ready to make a claim. The Sassanid Empire was on the brink of civil war. Khosrow II had lost control of his empire. The feudal houses, which were happily less autonomous under Sassanid rule than they were under Parthian rule, were now beginning to suit themselves, which seemed much more sensible than relying on any kind of centralised rule now that the empire was clearly falling apart. Khosrow II was deposed by his own son and was sent to trial and most likely executed. Over the course of four years, the empire would be ravaged by infighting and that would financially cripple Sassanid Persia and effectively leave it to ruin. It may have been the perfect time for the Byzantines to move in and take what was left of Sassanid Persia for themselves. But while all of these events had been taking place, a new power had emerged in the Arabian Peninsula. And it was one that had easily taken the Sassanid lands in the far south of the peninsula, including control over all of the lands to the west and the south of the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. The new Arabian power would come to be known as the Rashidun Caliphate and would emerge after the Islamic prophet Muhammad emigrated from Mecca to Medina in 622, an event referred to in Islam as the Hijra. Muhammad's Muslim followers would gain more and more influence over the lands of Arabia up until Muhammad's death in 632. Thereafter, as the Rashidun Caliphate, the empire would continue to grow, taking advantage of the weakened state of the empires to its north, namely the Sassanids and the Byzantines. In 633, the Rashidun's would move into Mesopotamia and by 636 they had pushed the Sassanids east of the Zagros Mountains. In 642, Caliph Umar then ordered a complete takeover of the Sasanian Empire and within two years the job had been completed. Such was the overwhelming might of the Rashidun's and the comparative weakness of the Sassanids. The remaining Sassanids, 
under the rule of Yazdegerd III, would flee eastwards and be pinned into a small area of the lands in the northeast of the modern country of Iran called Khorazan. The Sassanids had lost their empire. Persians were defecting to the Arabian invaders and the locals were advising Yazdegerd to make peace with the Arabs. No one was prepared to offer tax money to a futile war effort. Ultimately, Yazdegerd III would end up getting murdered in 651 and it doesn't seem like a glorious death. One report states that he was killed by a lowly miller for his jewellery. But whatever the circumstances, Yazdegerd's death was the end of the Sasanian line and the Rashidun Arabs would make quick work of taking over the last Sasanian lands. All of the Iranian lands were now under the control of an Islamic caliphate, meaning that the pre-Islamic period of Persian history was now over. Persia, or Iran, as we probably should call it, was more or less Islamic from this point on. But that begs the question, what was the religion of these lands before the Islamic conquest of Persia? So next week, we are going to focus on this fascinating aspect of Persian history as we explore Persian religion. Well, that was a bit of a marathon, but what a dramatic journey. And uh, that brings an end to this four-parter of Persian history in terms of the chronological story from the ascent of the Achaemenids right through to the Seleucids, the Arsacid dynasties of the Parthian Empire and ultimately the Sasanian Empire. So a fascinating four-parter. Now we're going to go back over the history of Persian religion, which is once again another fascinating insight, and especially for those of you who want to learn more about the origins of Zoroastrianism. So I highly recommend next week's episode, but thank you so much for listening to this week's fascinating episode. Now, if you're enjoying the project and you want to support it further, you can do that. You can make a financial donation each month to the upkeep of the podcast. Every financial donation is hugely valuable to uh, especially the resources that are used for the podcast. So it really does help me to gather together good reading materials, which uh, really, I think, bolster the quality of the podcasts and the quality of the information from within the podcasts if you want to make a financial contribution you can you can do it at the patreon page uh, which is accessible through the history of the world podcast.com website and you can sign up for as little as one dollar a month there are rewards for patreons and uh, not just usual rewards through the patreon system that you're used to where you sign up for a monthly donation and that particular monthly donation denotes what gift you qualify for for my patreon page if you accumulate um, contributions over an amount of time then you can be eligible for the larger rewards as have some already who have uh, received gifts from the history of the world podcast such as coasters and key rings and that kind of thing Um, that has already happened for some of these 
paying patrons. When you become a paying patron for as little as $1 a month, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, as have Nick Gassman and Suresh Thalange, who have both become lifelong members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you very much for your support, as uh, I would like to thank all of those who continually support the podcast. A couple of you have already contributed over a hundred dollars to the podcast over um, you know over the, the last few months. I can't thank you enough. That's an incredible pledge to the upkeep of the podcast and I promise to uh, make every effort to keep the quality of the podcast at a very high level. So thank you so much. So this is the first new episode of the podcast of the year 2020 however it's not the first podcast that I've recorded this year and uh, the reason for that is because I've re-recorded episode two of volume one so we're going back to volume one and trying to improve the quality of the podcast episodes uh, from back in volume one so if you want to listen to a re-recording of episode two you can go back and do it now it's available through the normal platforms and uh, I'll continue to try and re-record some of those older episodes to try and bring the quality much more up to the standard that we're publishing them at now. I received a wonderful review uh, and recommendation from Jackie Olvera Decky on the Facebook page, uh, who's put, although I've never been one to get excited about history, I accidentally found this podcast one evening while looking for something else entirely. From the first episode I was hooked, I listen to an episode each night before I go to sleep and look forward to the next each morning. Chris, you are amazing. Thank you for providing such educational, enlightening and entertaining information. I am thoroughly addicted. Thank you so much, Jackie. It really does mean a lot. Thank you. A big thank you to Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Uh, for all of his uh, cross-promoting that he does of, of my podcast. I'm very nervous because I'm currently writing about ancient Greece and I'm um, considerably frightened of the fact that I'm not going to measure up to his fantastic expertise. But hopefully, well, you know, I'm going to give it my best shot and uh, Ryan has already given me his uh, support, a, bit, a pat on the back and a, a good luck. So... Thank you, Ryan, and thanks for your support. Tracy L. Doyle sent me an email this week saying, Thank you for your fantastic work in producing this amazing series. I found you looking up stuff on the Indo-European language, and I'm now starting from the very beginning of your podcasts. When I was young, my mother was studying cultural anthropology, so I cut my teeth on ancient and prehistoric history. And as a speaker of American English with a fascination for accents and dialects, I really appreciate your Essex accent. Um, loving your work and can't wait to hear more. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah, I'm, one of the interesting things, I think, is when my family listen to my podcast, they don't actually recognise my voice because I have to actually compromise my personal accent to be able to be understood on the podcasts. My Essex accent is extremely vulgar in real life and um, I didn't realise how vulgar it was until I started speaking to various English speakers around the world and, and I found that they couldn't understand me so 
I have had to compromise my accent just for the sake of the podcast. But interesting anyway, we talk about history of accents and languages and so it's always interesting to dwell on it somewhat, I suppose. Well, I'm going to pack it in there as I don't want to go too overboard, but as my regular listeners know, I do like to acknowledge anyone who has sent me a message or has made a donation or anything that anyone has contributed towards the podcast is always gratefully received. I really do love and appreciate any correspondence that I have received from you guys. It means a great deal to me and it fills me with a lot of warmth to read a lot of the heartfelt and complimentary comments that you make for the work. I really, really enjoy writing these episodes and and discovering so much about the history of the world. And um, like I say, at the moment, I'm I'm writing about the ancient Greek world, which is, once again, it's mind-blowing. And it seems that each new volume of the podcast comes with its own dynamic. And I'm finding that this particular uh, volume, volume three, we're really starting to get a feeling about the characters who were around back then and this fascination this week about the relationship between Shah Khosrow II and his uh, military general uh, Shahar Baraz is an absolutely fascinating story so hopefully we'll discover far more relationships like that and I'm sure we will anyway thank you for listening this week we'll look forward to catching up again next week for some more Persian history until then be good and thank you and we'll see you again do you want more from the history of the world podcast then visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com you can join our discussion forum and find us on social media support the podcast for as little as one dollar per month by clicking the patreon link Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.